0: And I always encourage my teams to think about people's potential versus their experience. And if leaders that I had worked for and with only looked at my experience, I would never have had the jobs that I did. I would never have been able to move out of HR and move into a commercial role. But somebody saw my potential and was willing to take a gamble on me. And so I think we need to help people reframe that, that, you know, years and years of experience, yeah, sure, that's great. But if you've got the potential and if you've got a growth mindset, then you can do anything.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I start all of these the same. I will go through your background. I'll read it to you. You can correct me on what I screw up, and we can go from there. Got it. All right. Went to the University of Illinois, which we're recording in Chicago in a live studio right now. Pretty fancy. It's really legit. We are still in Illinois here. You got your BA in psychology and Spanish. Then you got your master's in business and HR from that same very University of Illinois, back to back. Then you went to PwC as an associate. Then you went to GE for two years. NBC Universal for four-ish years, five years. Is that right? I
0: think a little longer, but the GE and NBC kind of all merged together because GE ran an HR leadership program that placed me at NBC Universal, which was one of their portfolio companies back in the day.
1: By the way, for the audience listening, like GE now is probably not the sexiest place to work, but GE then, like those leadership programs were like the high potential programs, right?
0: It was super cool. (laughs) It was like my shining moment of glory to be part of GE's HR leadership development program.
1: There you go. There you go. Okay. So some five-ish, four-ish, six-ish years spent at NBC, HR manager, HR director, and then in 2008-ish... It seems like you got your first sales gig. That was the big pivot, yes. Okay, so 2008 to 2011, you did that. Then you found what at the time was a little company called LinkedIn. You were a manager of media sales. I assume they were excited by your media background, which is how you positioned yourself into the company. Had some success doing that. Then you were a solutions director for the Americas, spent three years doing that. Senior director of global solutions for three, four years-ish. Then the global head of sales for Glint, Mark Malloy was your predecessor? Yep. Okay. Do you know Mark? I do, Okay, great guy. I
0: I worked for him for, unfortunately, not long enough, but...
1: Great guy. Then you went to Pendo, May of 2021. What is that, six months ago?
0: Yeah, about five and a half months, yeah. All right. Fresh. How did I do? (laughs) You did great. You did great.
1: So, I did some digging on you, and Peter Kim, on my behalf... You know Peter? I do know Peter, yes, yes. OG. He asked a few people that know you pretty well, and what came of it was ask Jen about the job she had while she was living in Ireland. Oh, okay. (laughs) The stage is yours.
0: Yes. Well, that's not on my LinkedIn profile, but I was a bartender. So in between undergrad and grad school, knowing it was going to be my last summer to have a fake job, not a real job, I got a couple of friends and I said, let's go do something crazy. (laughs) And so we packed up our bags. We went to Ireland. We went to Galway, not really knowing, just hearing it was kind of a fun, cool college town. Yeah. Basically like knocked on doors trying to get a job. I think I got the best of the lot. One of my friends ended up being a hotel house cleaner. Okay. The other one worked at some, like, teeny bopper clothing <laughs> shop, and I landed a pub. I was like, I landed the dream. I'm working at an Irish pub. So I kind of, like, fudged my background a little bit. I had waited tables, but I'd never really bartended. Uh-huh. And I was like, sure, they're they're the same, right? Yeah. Not really. Yeah. You got to know how to pull a pint yeah. if you're going to work I in don't a pub in know, Ireland.
1: I don't even know what pulling a pint means. Yeah, I there's like a
0: science and
1: art. Like pouring a beer.
0: Yeah, but if it's Guinness, it has to, like, settle, and every one of their beers has some special magic, like, secret sauce you have to use when you pour it. So my first day on the job, I showed up, first of all, live band in the background, these thick Irish accents. I can't even understand what they're ordering, number one. Number two, I don't know how to make it, so (laughs) I just kind of, like, had to pull the fake it till you make it. Thankfully, the other bartenders were in my corner. They hooked me up. They helped me out. That night after my first gig, they said, we're staying back. We are teaching you everything you need to know about how to bartend in Ireland. Oh,
1: my. How old were you? Uh, Must have been about 20, maybe 21. Oh, man. I guess I'm too old to do that now, but that sounds amazing.
0: It was probably one of the funnest summers of my life.
1: What was your first ever job where you got a paycheck?
0: So my first ever job was actually selling. I was not even 16, so I don't think I was legally working, but I think I might have fudged that a little bit, too, because all my friends were 16, so they were working. So I was selling this local community newspaper, basically going door to door, trying to get people to sign up for two-week subscriptions. And if you got someone to sign up, like it was cash in hand, got me very excited.
1: Where is this? Where in the world are you doing that? side of Chicago. Okay.
0: Yeah, where I grew up.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Okay. I have another question for you, and then I want to unpack some of the Chicago stuff here. Okay. What is JOMO? I've never heard anyone say that before. <laughs> what the hell is that?
0: JOMO, the joy of missing out. Tell me about, tell me about that. <laughs> it is this aspirational goal of mine to be able to embrace JOMO, okay. which is not feeling like you need to do everything okay. or not seeing other people do things and wanting to be part of it. And I have a lot of FOMO, which I oversubscribe my life because I never want to miss out on anything, which to a degree is great because there's not many things that I've done in my life that I've backed and said, like, gosh, I really wish I stayed home and didn't fly to Thailand for that wedding. But sometimes, like, you just need to chill and I need to get better at the mm. joy of missing out on things and just having more moments to relax and catch up on life and smell the roses. When, when
1: was the last time you missed out on something that you were joyful about?
0: I don't know that I have yet. Yeah, okay, so it's, <laughs> That's it's, an a, it's an aspirational.
1: It's an aspirational goal. Yes, it is. Good. Okay, so you grew up in Chicago. You grew up in the South Side of Chicago. I did. You went to the University of Illinois. Yes. For your undergrad, you then went to your. Same alma mater for I stayed
0: straight on because I had no idea what I wanted to do. (laughs) We're
1: now in River North, in Chicago, and ostensibly all of your jobs have been in Chicago? No, 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 no.
0: So I actually, my first job, and this is little known to anyone, I try to kind of bury it a little bit, but I did go to Tampa, Florida (laughs) briefly. Wasn't my place. It's a great place for a lot of people. I envisioned myself like barefoot and living on the beach, Mm -hmm. but Tampa's not that. It's a city. And I also didn't love the consulting lifestyle and job and... Just wanted to get back to a big city, and while I was down in Florida, one of my friends from grad school had secured a job in New York City. She had a bunch of us up there. As I was driving into New York City from the airport, literally like Frank Sinatra was playing in my head, and I was like, I have got to live here. So I made it my mission. Went back to Florida, started calling my grad school, started doing some legwork, and as it turned out, GE was hiring for the HR Leadership Program. Got an interview there specifically for an open role at MBC Universal, and I packed my bags and moved there. And I lived there just over a decade. Met my husband there. You lived in New York for a decade. I did. I did. Yes, yes, yes. I am not this like tried and true Chicago and has never been anywhere. I lived in New York for a decade. Frankly, just moved back to Chicago about I I say just. Sometimes it feels like I just left New York, but we've been here about six years now. Okay. So had my third kid here, and now I think we're I think we're settled. We like it. My family's here. Chicago's great. I love New York City. I absolutely love it. Every now and again, I'm like, man, did I, like, throw it in, throw in the towel? Should I have just, like, stayed and tried to push for that New York City lifestyle? With your kids? I know. And then that's what I remember. I'm like, Jen, you've got three kids. They don't fit anywhere in New York. And so—
1: that feels like you got to practice JOMO a little bit better. That's I, JOMO, right? I, that's, that's JOMO. That's like, right. What do
0: I have in Chicago? What I have in Chicago is I can live in the city. My three kids can have this urban lifestyle. We can hop on divvy bikes and ride to Wrigley Field. We can also drive out to the country really easily. And I can always go back and visit
1: New York when I want to. Chicago is like a mini New York.
0: Yes, it is.
1: I went on a run yesterday on the lakefront and it was so nice. Yeah. It was like 40 degrees, but it was so nice. Yeah. All right. Grew up on the south side. For those that aren't from Chicago, that's like not the best area in, it's not River North.
0: It's definitely not River North. No, no. Chicago is a city of neighborhoods for those who aren't familiar with it. And, you know, you've got different pockets all over. And some of it's beautiful. It's this beautiful patchwork quilt where you can cross the street and all of a sudden everything is written in Greek or drive two blocks and then everything's in Polish. The neighborhood I lived in was a very Irish Catholic neighborhood on the far south side of Chicago. My dad was a homicide detective. My mom was making her way through her college education when I was growing up. And so very, very blue collar, service oriented, but also very, very tight community
1: of just wonderful people. Mm. Then what? Are your parents still there? hmm are they still in the same house?
0: Uh, they're still in the same house, yes, yes. Are you serious? And today, my brother just graduated from the fire academy and became a fireman today. Today? Yes, today. In the
1: Chicago Fire Department? Chicago Fire Department, yeah. Wow, congrats. Yeah,
0: just like the TV show, right? So you Chicago go, Fire, yeah. So,
1: so you bring your kids back to the same house that you grew up in?
0: Uh, yeah, they go visit, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. What's the neighborhood like?
0: Same. Same. <laughs> Very unchanged.
1: Same neighborhood.
0: (laughs) Yep, same neighborhood. So my kids actually, I was in San Francisco for a wedding last weekend, and my kids stayed at Papa and Grandma Camp down on the South Side.
1: Oh, also, I have another question for you. Sure. We're just going to bounce around. So I couldn't find the actual podcast, but at some point, you started a podcast. I did. Okay. I did. Okay, and— I assume it was under, it was called Talk to the Brand. Yes. And I assume it was under LinkedIn's moniker, correct? Like it was under their umbrella. Yes. You know what surprised me the most about this? So you started it, if I'm not mistaken, in like 2019, 2020-ish. So if I'm putting myself in your shoes, I was thinking like, you don't start a podcast to just like do five episodes. Usually you start a podcast to like make a good run at it. Yeah. You had no idea you were going to leave LinkedIn, did no. you? You wouldn't have started this and done all this effort if you were going to leave.
0: No, it was a lot of work. Well, a couple things happened with that podcast. I was so excited about it. We had great content, great guests. We're making up for it now. I know, I'm making up for it. I'm like living <laughs> vicariously. This was my true life. What I was meant to do, be here in front of a microphone with these headphones That's on. That's right. You do feel real official. I like it's that. super official. So started the podcast and it was all about employer branding and and different tactics to really truly attract and retain talent and really thinking through the marketing and sales mindset about how you build your talent acquisition strategy and bringing in thought leaders and experts around both personal brand, employer brand, all kinds of great thought leadership there. What happened as we were preparing, so we wanted to get, you probably know the drill here, it's like you want to get a pool of episodes before you launch that you're not like, ah, we haven't had anything in, in a month and a half, we're dark. And so we were building up that pool of episodes and we were kind of ready to launch and then COVID hit. And we were concerned that any messaging around hiring and employer branding and building culture would feel very tone deaf. And so we pushed pause and said, let's come back at a later date, see how this all plays out and figure out when we launch it. And then I ultimately ended up leaving LinkedIn, which to your point where I believe you were taking this is that it wasn't on my immediate term plan, Yeah, but... Plans change. Sometimes things just happen
1: unexpectedly. Is it too late to give it another go?
0: No, I don't think so. Don't you, I, I feel know.
1: like, I feel like, <laughs> fellas, don't you, I feel like you'd kill it. I feel like you would absolutely get you a studio like this, you'd be a great podcast host.
0: Why thank you. I appreciate that.
1: All right. Well, it's not too late. I'm gonna encourage you to do All it. Right. So, okay. A couple of questions on your background that I want to talk about, Pendo. And then I have a bunch of questions that are like less about your specific. Background and more that I just want you to answer for me. Is Got that it? fair? That's how I'm thinking this episode's gonna go. Perfect. Okay. So at LinkedIn, you were running a 300 plus person sales org. Yes? Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, and Longfield queued me up for this, the org was helping with product launches. Is that right? Yes. Is that that experience or is that the subsequent or previous experience?
0: So let me tell you about the solutions team. So when I came over to join LinkedIn, it was to be part of this new team that we were building as LinkedIn was diversifying their product portfolio within the talent solutions business beyond our core. So beyond seats and slots and dabbling in this new concept of selling in media. They needed someone who not only understood the media and advertising space, but also could help build the business, hire the team, and bring the sales boots to the concept of teaching our RMs how to sell, teaching our customers how to buy, and then making them successful with their new multi-product investment with LinkedIn. So it started with employer branding media, things like A career page, branding yourself on LinkedIn's platform, things like ads on all of your employees' profiles, but also targeted campaign media. So really taking a full funnel approach to your talent acquisition strategy. So I came in bringing both the subject matter expertise as well as having led teams and having launched a product essentially at NBC Universal. And so my remit was to like make this work. And when we started, it was an $11 million business and it grew to over a $600 million business by the time I left. Now, if that had just been my job, I would not have done it for the seven and a half-ish, eight years that I did before moving over to Glint. What became exceptionally cool and very enticing about my job was— It changed every year as LinkedIn brought new products to market. So as we would either acquire a company or build a new product, my team would make that product successful. So we would scale it up the S-curve, and then we would ultimately pass it off to the field or continue to hold on to it if it required longer-term subject matter expertise to either sell or to service it on the post-sale side.
1: Did they just give you the product on a platter and say, deal with this? Or was there any point where you would talk to the BD team to be like, hey, I don't know how we're going to be able to integrate this. I actually have Emily Troy. I had her on the show. She's now the president of Coinbase. She was running all M&A at LinkedIn. Would she just bring you this and be like, all right. John, go figure it out. How did that actually work?
0: Yeah, it was never necessarily a hot potato toss. There was always a lot <laughs> of people involved. Like, what do we do with this? You know, we we acquired a, a small company at one point, and we didn't know if we wanted to integrate the product into our core platform, if we wanted to sell it as an add-on. And until you figure out your product strategy, you can't figure out your go-to-market strategy. So there's always this incubation period, if you will, while you figure out what's working, what's not working. You test a few things. So I was always part of that team. So even when we would launch a new product, you know, we would incubate it for a while before we'd ultimately align on what the formal go-to-market strategy was for that product.
1: If you look at your ride at LinkedIn, everything's up and to the right. I tell all my LinkedIn guests this. I'm like, it's kind of funny because your resume at linkedin over the last 10 years is just this crazy amazing rocket ship and then it reflects on your actual linkedin profile i'm always curious what was the shittiest part of that ride what didn't go well what are the times where like you think back and you get a knot in your stomach shit that sucked
0: yeah. I mean, there were always ups and downs, right, with any job. And if you don't have the downs, then, then you're not learning <laughs> like, and you're building complacency. And we had a few of those launches and companies that we acquired that just didn't work. And that sucks at the time. But you know what happens? You learn from it and then you build it into your future state playbook. Mm-hmm. I also experienced a very large scale layoff that I had to lead through my largest contingent of sales specialists and account managers, we decided to move that business into another business line, uh, into our marketing solutions business line, to better align with just sort of how the buying persona was evolving. And it was hard. It was brutal. It was a team of people that I had, for the most part, hired, and if not, had touched at some point in my journey. It was incredibly emotional, as it was a team that really did feel like family. And so, look, you think back on all these things, and, and you look at you look at it through two lenses, like how did I feel at the time and how do I feel now? And I think back to how I felt at the time. And it was probably the hardest three months of my entire career because, you know, sleepless nights where you just have this knot in your stomach knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. And then going through that 24 hours was was surreal.
1: What's dramatic? Sorry to interrupt you. You said dramatic, like dramatic downsize or reorg. Uh, about 200 people. Out of? About 330-ish. So most. Yeah. And that, in some sense, you hold accountability for their family and making sure that they get set up for that next play. How did you think about that?
0: Yeah, that's why I had the knots in my stomach all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really delicate balance of maintaining the confidentiality and integrity of what we wanted to do to make sure it was the right experience for the individuals. LinkedIn su- did such an amazing job making sure we had all of the right support resources in place. We had this huge effort to hire all people who were impacted or displaced by the company reduction in force yep. with other open jobs, because other parts of LinkedIn were still growing. Yep. And we were still backfilling roles. And also... I was very proud of the entire organization when I asked leaders from across LinkedIn, I said, put your name on this spreadsheet, put how many time slots you're willing to donate, put what the best time and days are for you, and have mentoring sessions with the people who are going to be impacted. And I think I probably reached out to, I don't know, about 50 leaders across LinkedIn, and there were over 300 slots dedicated to my team to have those career conversations, to open up access to their networks for these people and just to kind of help them play out different career scenarios. So I was very pleased with how the company showed up during all of this. It was about as compassionate and I would say just full of integrity as you can be going through something as difficult and as painful. But back to your original question, how did I feel? I knew I had to preserve, you know, I can't go like, hey, Jubin, just want to give you the heads up on what's happening. Like, that's not right as a leader, right? What's right as a leader is to shepherd through the experience and make it as positive as possible for everyone involved, for the company and for the people. So it was aligned to my personal integrity to never lie to anyone. And we had been talking for some time and planting seeds that a reorganization was going to happen. And when people would ask me, I would say, yes, we talk about it you know, at some point we will likely combine these businesses. But what that timing is, is to be determined. And so when people said, should I be looking for another job? It was always, you should always be having conversations and building your yeah. network and knowing what your market value is. And when we have information to share, we will absolutely share it with you. So it, it was, it was yeah. towing a fine line. It was just very difficult because once again, like I just 100% wanted to take care of, of my people and wanted the company to rise to the occasion and take care of their people more broadly, even just beyond me.
1: And you didn't have much practice laying people off, doing that motion, did you?
0: Well, sadly, I did. Tell me. (laughs) I don't know if you remember back when you read my career path, I did start my career in HR. Yeah. So when I came off GE's HR leadership program which by the way when you're on program you feel like a rock star you're yeah. getting like flown all over the world yeah. you're sitting at the C suite yeah. like you're just learning you're getting networked with all the time and then you come off program and you're like oh I'm just in the job. (laughs) So I was doing this HR job and actually growing in my career, I was promoted a couple of times, like led a couple of different business lines as an HR business partner. But at the time, the media industry was very tumultuous. Everything was shifting to digital. There was lots of divestitures, acquisitions, reorganizations. And so we were going through a number of layoffs. And the really Big learning for me as I worked with different business partners throughout NBC Universal was how they handled layoffs. The ones who would shy away from having a hard conversation and put the pressure on me to own it, how disappointing. Like, this is your decision. You need to own it. You need to be the leader and stand behind it. Even if you don't like it, You need to be able to have the hard conversation, not just punt it off to someone else. And then the true leaders were the ones who would have the hard conversation with me by their side as their partner. And so I learned a lot going through that and seeing how different leaders behaved when they had to break bad news to their employees. And I learned what kind of leader I wanted to be and what kind of leader I didn't want to be.
1: That's amazing. I have more questions on that, but I got to keep it moving. Also, it's kind of depressing just talking about the (laughs) I know, let's uh, move on to happier subjects. Okay, so then you go to be the head of sales at Glint. Pretty good job. Like, Glint was a pretty important part of LinkedIn's business. Yep. Probably a bigger org for you. Were you looking? I suspect you weren't. What happened? How'd you end up at Pendo? Tell me about the process.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll first go back to Glint. I've been having conversations with Mark Malloy for a while because Glint had always really, really energized me. I just loved the platform. All the people I'd worked with were phenomenal. And I wanted to round out my experience with a pure sales role. Everything that I had done was like new product launches, leading and building sales overlay teams, building go-to-market strategies. But I hadn't led a direct selling team until I went over to Glint. And I wanted that experience to round myself out and also prove to myself that I could do it. I have a jungle gym career path leading up to where I am today. And it used to, I guess, somewhat concern me that I was too much of a generalist and and not enough of a specialist as I looked at some other peers' career paths that were far more linear than mine. And I wanted the job at Glint to, to prove that I could do it and actually to see what else I needed to learn to be a CRO, as that was kind of a goal that I'd formulated as I was starting to lead bigger global teams and carry big numbers. I was like, I think, I think that could be where I want to go when I do end up leaving LinkedIn. And so the Glint role was the perfect in-between step for me to take all the experiences I had, put them into a different context, and see what I still needed to learn and where I still needed to build. And so going over to Glint, I mean, first of all, it was amazing. The team welcomed me with open arms, and, you know, they were on a great growth trajectory. It's an awesome product, and working under Mark, even briefly, I learned so much, but it also validated to me that I can do this. Yeah, sure, there's a couple of different things that I need to learn and different areas of focus, but, you know, so much of leadership is centered in a few key areas, and then for the areas that you're not great, you... Learn and you hire great people, and so Glint kind of taught me that. And so my experience there was an absolute game changer for me because if I didn't do that role at Glint, I never would have had the opportunity at Pendo Service.
1: You said your goal to be a CRO was formulating at that time. When you're going through your career at LinkedIn, you don't have like a end state that you want to reach. No,
0: I didn't, and I know some people do do. I really do think some people are very, very good at charting out their career. So you're just
1: present in your job. Yes. Without thinking about what's the next job.
0: When I start thinking about what's the next job. When
1: all of your peers are getting promoted and talking about this and talking about that. Sorry, I... Keep interrupting. No,
0: no, no. You're okay. You're okay. I think the nature of the team that I was on, where the job changed organically beneath me so much every year, it was like every year was a new, exciting challenge. And I was continuing to build on my skill sets and continuing to be challenged. For me, when I've always known it was time to change jobs. And when I said, what do I think I'm ready for next? It was just when I stopped learning and I stopped feeling like a new challenge that came in was going to be additive. And it started to feel like it was just going through the cycle of muscles that I'd already built, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, it does. So let me just get this straight, just so I understand correctly. And this is more mind blowing to me. And I I wish something that I had more of, but you can be present in a job only focused on executing the task at hand in that job and not concerned at all about what that next job is for you. Yes. And so in your job today, while you're new, you still feel that same way? I
0: feel that same way right now, yes. And I probably will for until I feel that like I am not learning anymore as a CRO and I am ready to be a CEO at a smaller stage company. Like I don't think I'm going to feel that pull or that pressure.
1: Do you never like want to look around the corner and just be like, I wonder what's hiding around that corner there?
0: It's a good question, but
1: not really. So can I give you an example? Yes. Um, Mark Malloy talks about in his episode about career planning with his team. So if Mark Malloy sat down with you and did career planning and said, Jen, what do you want to be in five years? And what are the steps that we can take together one year, two years? Yep. You would have no idea.
0: I wouldn't say I'd have no idea. I'd probably have a few different paths that I think I could go down. And I say, oh, I could do this, 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 this. And then over time, it starts to crystallize based on the parts of your job that you love the most. As an example, if the part of my job that I love the most, as it turns out, sitting at the C-suite is like, you know, the part that stimulates me the most is the real business strategy and looking at M&A and thinking about the finances and where the business is going to go in five years and being part of that, then maybe CEO is like the next role for me. If it turns out after I'm, you know, more settled in my job and more more mature in my job that the part that I love the most is building and scaling sales teams and putting in the right scaffolding. And then maybe I go to an earlier stage company and try to be an earlier stage CRO and build from the ground up. I don't know yet because there's too much that I don't know in this role that I think will help point me in that direction. And sometimes I think, and maybe this is just me because I really like change, Hmm. (laughs) and I do change my mind a bit about what I want in life generally, I think sometimes if you anchor yourself too much on one firm career path, you miss opportunities that could help you build your base and ultimately help you grow taller.
1: I actually couldn't agree more with that, generally speaking. I was always the guy that had such a firm, linear path with such a clear outcome in mind. And- One of the best things that I did was stop thinking about my life that way. And even now in my current job, I always think about what's next. And I think about what's next in the context of how do I take on more responsibility to then make a broader impact on the organization? And as I think about that, often the tempering of my own instinct that I'm doing is making sure that I give space for other options to open. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. I've always been so clear in what I want to do that I just rush through to get to that point, which in some ways kind of like prohibits other dirt paths to open for me to explore. And now I feel less pressure than I did, but certainly still feel pressure to just kind of slow down and explore what else could be there. And I like your framing of it, which is figuring out what you're good at and what you love? How does that experience manifest internally? When you're at LinkedIn, how do you start to pick up on the things that you love? You just chase like, okay, I love recruiting. Jen's going to do recruiting. And then it's like, okay, I love being in deals. And then you look at that checklist at the end of the day and you're like, you know what? These things all lead to a job that looks like a CRO.
0: So I wouldn't say it's that prescriptive, but I do a lot of reflecting on where I think I'm strong and I naturally gravitate to, where I think I naturally shy away from a little bit and I really need to build that skill set to be successful, and where I naturally gravitate away from and I probably don't need to do and can, like, delegate that to someone else. I think about that a lot because you have to be very intentional about where you spend your time as... leader with a big job. And so I would say it's more reflection than actually kind of like ticking boxes around what I like and what I don't like. But as an example, there are things that I would say I'm probably not as strong at right now, which is like, especially not having like a very long storied career as a sales leader who went Mm -hmm. up the ladder is demand gen and partnering with marketing. It's not natural to me because I haven't done the 10,000 hours, if you will, but it's so critical and important to the success of my organization and the success of my team that I need to lean in there. So I need to partner with marketing. I need to dig my teeth into that and really understand it because it's absolutely critical. Then there's some other things that like, uh, I don't love doing this all that much, and I might kind of just not spend as much time on it and see if someone on my team could pick it up. But the things that come very naturally to me that I absolutely love and want to lean in on as an example, like org design, building go-to-market strategies, leading and inspiring a team, building culture. I really do say, this is what I love. What could this translate to as it relates to like
1: a future career opportunity? So if you're never thinking about, generally speaking, if you're not thinking about what's next, then the moments of reflection are quite important. You got to really focus on that. How do you reflect? For me, like I run and I'm reflecting. Before I go to bed, unfortunately, I'm reflecting. When I'm on vacation, I'm reflecting. Generally moments where I'm away from my job. What does it look like for you?
0: You hit it on the head with number one. I run religiously. I'm a crazy runner. It you is my. You would smoke me. I bet you, you would smoke me. <laughs> it is my, it is my meditation. It is my therapy. It's my alone time. Man, did I run in COVID? It was like my only time away from my husband and my three kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I was running like nine, 10 miles a day. It was kind of crazy. But running is my, is my reflection time. I'm very thankful I don't reflect before I fall asleep. Otherwise, I'd be up all night. Yeah. I fall asleep really
1: easily. I'm always so tired. Yeah. Well, when you run ten miles in a it's day, all the running it doesn't and, uh, surprise and me. Running. Yeah. <laughs> You run ten miles a day? Not
0: anymore. But during COVID, I
1: during hell? COVID I would
0: eh, I was I was averaging between seven and ten a day during COVID. What
1: the hell? That's a lot. Now okay. now
0: I can't fit it in, but I do. I like I'll wedge it in wherever I can. And so even if I have like a super early morning meeting, if I have like a even a thirty or forty minute break, it's like, bam, just go pound it out. Even if it's just like three miles. Yeah, and-
1: I'm the same way. When you run, do you listen to music?
0: So I never used to listen to anything because it was just think, reflect. And people always thought I was crazy. They're like, you, are you like a masochist? Yeah. Like you run with nothing? Yeah. And I am now trying to be more productive with all hours of my day. And mm-hmm. so running, I'm now trying to listen to podcasts a little bit more.
1: Yeah, that's what I do. I do all my workouts. In fact, I got rid of my, this is going to sound really crazy, but when I was living in Chicago and it was December and I've never experienced... A temperature that cold before, I was like, I gotta buy a Peloton. And I bought a Peloton for the first like month. I had a sugar spike of happiness. So I was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Especially when you're traveling, doing whatever, 20 minutes on the Peloton is really efficient. And then after a while, I was like, I can't multitask. All I have to do is get screamed at by this digital instructor. And I can't listen to podcasts. Like I can't do anything while I'm running. And sometimes the podcast when I'm running, is the flicker for me of reflection. Yep. Does that make sense?
0: Totally. And plug for you, I found go-to-market grit as I was in transition from LinkedIn to Pendo, and I started listening to it as I was running. And it actually really helped me reflect on where I was going to need to lean in more and grow, and hearing other leaders' stories was incredibly insightful and, and helped me build my like 90 day plan as I was moving into this
1: role. So yeah, uh, well, thank you. Kudos Uh, to you.
0: I was so excited to find it.
1: uh, Kudos to the guests that I've had before you. They do all the heavy lifting. Why do you think that running is such a reflective process? Even as I sit here thinking about it with you, like I don't take Zooms anymore. My calendar is pretty full with phone calls. I walk through New York City or wherever I am just taking calls. I can be way more focused I have way more attention when I'm moving. Do you feel the same way? Yes. Okay, you think it's like a movement thing? I
0: love walking on calls now and as much as I can. I'm doing it especially working from home when you're sitting at the same yeah. desk all day long. Running for me, I think there's a couple of things that go into it. One, you are seizing the moment. Like you are taking advantage of time and space that you have and you have the choice. As to how you want to use it, and you're gonna use it to do something good for yourself. So there's already this like element of willpower and control, and I'm using my time productively and I'm bettering myself because any anytime I run, I'm bettering myself, right? I'm getting better. I'm getting faster, I'm getting stronger, I'm getting healthier. So that's number one for me. I feel good when I run because I feel like I'm using time effectively and I'm doing something that's good for myself. Number two, add the endorphins that come along with it. You know, sometimes we get into, a bad headspace when we're thinking. Like, I think nighttime sometimes, you're like not in a great headspace when you start to reflect. Nights are hard because work is piling up. You're already thinking about what you have to do tomorrow for the short term. I'm at home trying to get three kids to bed, thinking about all the activities they have the next day. And so when I try to reflect... At home, I tend to think of things a little bit more negatively and and a little bit more short term. But when I'm running, you have the endorphins that I think come with movement and you kind of feel a little bit more like I can do anything. I don't know if you have that feeling, but I always have a more positive light on the types of thoughts and reflections that I'm having when I'm running versus when I'm in a different situation.
1: I 100% agree. I actually think running for me is more mental than it is physical. I think it's a way for me to exercise my brain as much as it is for me to exercise my body. Totally. All right. Okay. So Pendo was founded in 2013. It has raised a shitload of money, <laughs> $350 plus million, Tiger, Battery, Silver Lake, Meritech, Sapphire. Current valuation is $2.6 billion. Your first quarter company topped the $100 million in annual recurring revenue mark, IPO is kind of broadly expected on the horizon here. You don't have to comment on that. I will. Customers include Verizon, Remax, OpenTable. How did you end up there?
0: I wasn't sure that I was ready to move from LinkedIn, but I knew that when I went, you know, at this point, I had crystallized what I wanted to do next, and I knew I wanted it to be kind of a mid to late stage startup. I knew it had to be mission-driven because that was very important to me at LinkedIn, I knew it had to be amazing people that I would work with, and I wanted a category-leading product. Easy, right? So I started to have a few conversations just to see what was out there. And interestingly enough, a lot of those conversations started to progress a little bit. And I was like, okay, wow, this could be real. Like I could actually be a CRO. Maybe the time is now for me to leave. So (laughs) we had this Health and wellness week that LinkedIn very graciously gave to all of their employees in April of this year. And I had kind of corralled a couple of LinkedIn friends to, on a whim, fly with me to Scottsdale and go to a resort where we would play tennis and sit by the pool yeah. and go for hikes yeah. and, you know, just just let, let's make something of this, yeah. right? Sounds nice. And so while I was there, a former colleague and friend had put me in touch with Pendo. I was like, there's this really cool opportunity. There's this really cool company. I know what your criteria are for a company that you would move to, leave LinkedIn for. You should have a conversation. I was like okay, I'll have a conversation. I'm not sure if I feel like, you know, is the timing right? Okay, I'll have the conversation. So I had tennis on a Thursday morning, and I had the call with the CEO scheduled right after that. (laughs) I was like, should I take this call? I really feel like playing tennis today. I was like, no, Jen, take the call. And I went and I took the call, and it was the best call that I've ever had. I was like, I love this guy. I love this company. I love what they stand for. I love where they're going. And I think I have some skills that could really help with some of the challenges that they're facing. And so it all just snowballed from that first conversation right off the tennis court. I ended up probably having 10 or 12 more conversations, nights, weekends. Like, it moved very quickly because Pendo had been in a search for some time for a CRO. So I kind of came in sort of toward the end of the process and... Everyone I met, I just, I just was like, this is the kind of team that I wanna work with. These are the kind of people that I would get stuck on a four hour delay in the airport with.
1: When you say search for a long time, what's a long time, like a year, six months? Three- no,
0: I think the role has been open about five or six months. And Todd, yeah. our CEO was kind of like Picky. moonlighting as CRO as well. Yeah, I'm and- sure
1: the sales teams love that. <laughs> what was the hardest interview question that they asked you?
0: That's a good question.
1: Where you like paused like this, was it all business related? Was it all like competency rather than culture?
0: It was a mix. It's, it's interesting. There, there's a couple, I'm trying to think of like, there, there was a couple of good zingers. One that I really liked that I will now use is tell me the last piece of negative feedback that you got, which I liked. I liked that a lot. Another one that was really good is tell me about the competitor you hate showing up against the most and why. I liked that one too. They just get you thinking. Huh. But yeah, I, w- I would say it was probably 50-50 business and culture. And and the reason I think it was so balanced is because Pendo's very values-oriented. And I think the sales team, because they had been somewhat leaderless for so long with you know our founder CEO helping as much as he could, became a bit fractured. People do tend to break off into silos when they don't have a consistent guiding force or true north to, to help them or somebody who's bringing the team together and really honing and nurturing the culture. And I think that was missing from the sales org, and I think that that's what they knew they needed. Mm. The technical kind of competencies is absolutely important. I think Pendo actually really liked my background being so multi-dimensional and focusing on new product and go to market because pendo is on a journey to become a multi-product company and you know they've had a couple of acquisitions and trying to figure out how do we get these like truly humming how do we get these products how do we increase our attach rates how do we truly become a multi-product company and how do we reduce the complexity that we have built in our go to market model to help support our efforts to become a multi-product company it's a complex organization for 100 million ARR company, when I walked in, I was like, oh, wow, I kind of see now why you liked my background in designing different go-to-market models and figuring out how different roles were required for what type of product, so.
1: I'm not trying to lead the witness here, but I've known Pendo for a while. I know people that work there. I've known people that work there. They have a reputation for being a hard-charging sales culture, and so they have that. Then they have a vacuum of leadership for two-plus quarters. Yep, yep. Did you know what you were stepping into in that sense of the healing, whatever word you want to use, that you would have to do culturally? Did you know that that was going to be a big part of the job?
0: That I did. They were very transparent to me. People ask me, like, how has it been? And I say, as advertised. (laughs) It's one of those things that... You know if you jump off a fast moving train it's going to hurt when you hit the ground yeah. but then it still it still hurts when yeah. you hit the ground even if you know it's coming yeah. right and so it's still a lot like there's a lot to do but it was as advertised you know the second person that I met was our CHRO who is also relatively new and that's why she was the second vetter is to vet me out if I wasn't going to be the right cultural
1: fit And you might not be able to answer this but in your first 6 months maybe even a shorter time frame 3 months What are one to two things that you feel like you definitely got right? And one to two things where if you could do it over again, you would have, I don't know, maybe take your time more or whatever. Does anything stand out?
0: Yeah. So one thing I think that is working is that I spent my first few months just entirely focused on the people. I need to get to know these people. I want them to teach me about their business. I did a huge listening tour and I started to develop a... People-oriented operational cadence around, you know, all hands and touch points and different team meetings and cleaning up how we do forecast and how do I touch base with managers and build a development curriculum for them. So I focused a lot on the people, which I feel like was the right play because I feel like we're starting to truly come together and coalesce as a team. I also really invested in my leadership team coming together and taking off their segment-specific or function-specific hats and truly designing the vision of the future state of our organization together. It was very important to me that everybody felt bought in to the changes that we're making. They felt they have a voice in the changes that we're making. And then I would say I had a couple of probably quick wins from an organizational perspective. We, as I said, we have a very complex organizational model. As we acquired companies and took products to market, we spun up teams to sell them with differing ROEs, depending on which segment you were selling. And and it was just creating a lot of friction for our buyers as well as friction internally and so given that's kind of my sweet spot coming from having led overlay and specialist teams for so long i think we cleaned up a lot of a lot of that very early on where i am now looking back and reflecting and and wishing i spent a bit more time is like now the team needs me to like get in help them close deals be in front of customers so i'm trying to cram now to learn the Pendo way as it relates to yeah. negotiation, deal structuring, like what we do and don't do from a legal perspective. And those are the things that are super important that I prioritize below the team that now I'm like, I really need to lean in here because this is where the team needs me to roll up my sleeves, especially yeah. during end of quarters. Being like camp.
1: a better coach on the execution side. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A couple things that surprised me. I can't remember where I was listening to this interview of you or watching or whatever. But you're about five weeks into the job, and one of the things that you said is that you're just now implementing a hiring rubric at Pendo. Is that right or am I wrong?
0: Yeah, it's a cross-organizational effort, definitely not my own initiative.
1: I was surprised to hear that. And it's a good reminder for me of a lot of companies, especially in the Valley right now, just have such good product market fit. That the analogy that I use internally for our portfolio is they hit puberty at like 10 years old. So you find such a sweet spot in the market and you don't have time to build the executive team and bring the gens of the world in to build the processes like a hiring rubric. And then you come from a place like LinkedIn where you like, wait, we don't have a lowest common denominator set of qualities that we interview for. Yes.
0: So thankfully, again, as I mentioned, our CHRO came in recently. Yeah. We hired an amazing VP of talent. So they are like all over this interview training. Thank goodness we are now implementing across the organization and just getting a lot more deliberate about how we hire. Two more of those, which coming from LinkedIn where things are established and you just totally take them for granted. And then you come in and you're like, wait, what? We scaled to 100 million with one sales enablement resource. One. Yeah. I'm like, wait, how, how, how did we do yeah. this? Which is a huge testament to Pendo and this individual to be able to handle all of that. But these are the foundational scaffolding pieces that are so critical as you scale. The second one was sales ops. So our sales ops team, the very, very under-resourced, kind of just reacting to like systems issues. I'm like, gosh, we need to build a robust sales ops business partner or team that can be the operational foundation for our organization who can really help manage the operating cadence, the forecasting, all of the data, help build strategy. It's just like such a strong muscle at LinkedIn and coming to Pendo and seeing our sales ops team being so underwater and overworked and frankly, unfortunately, not strategic and not through skill, but just through sheer volume of work. So- there's a couple of those things where it's that whole puberty, like growing up into adolescence and you know yeah. your bones need to catch up with your rapidly expanding body. Yeah, there's a lot of those things that are kind of low-hanging fruit that I think are foundational teams and elements and pieces and systems and structures that you put in place now that allow you to scale for the future.
1: I remind myself that if we live in this really crazy world where this is a $2.6 billion company and we're... Hitting puberty, you know what I mean. Like this is a serious business. I was uh, two weeks ago. I was in Austin with thirty of the fifty Fortune One Hundred CIOs. Okay, so I'm not gonna say any of the names, but pick your huge fast food chain, huge airline, whatever, huge financial services company. These are the stalwarts of America's corporate institutions. Like these are them. They've been around forever, and. The CEO of, I probably shouldn't say the name, but like a very, very fast growing tech company comes in. And they're doing a billion dollars of revenue, growing 70% with a $50 billion valuation. And the CEO is 32. And all these CIOs are looking at each other and they're asking like very basic questions organization and structure questions, right? Like qualifying, like, is this thing going to fall down as soon as we use it? do they have a customer success team? These very basic things. And it was just another one of these reminders that I'm like, they haven't had any time to build any of this. They've grown so quickly and their market cap is bigger than any other company sitting in this room. And it just dawned on me that they had got the structure right. And then all the revenue has kind of followed that. And so we live in kind of this la-la land where I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? I know. <laughs> it's absolutely
0: crazy. <laughs> and some of these organizations that have taken hundreds of years to build and scale, they look
1: and they go, wow. <laughs> this company that we're in, Thrive, in two years, they're going to be at like over a f- million of revenue in two years since they got founded. And I'm like, we have work to do on the like company building side. We don't have the foundation. We're on stilts right now. We don't have the foundation to go build a hundred million dollar revenue business. Things are going to tip over. That's right. You Harsh wind blows. And- absolutely tip over. Exactly. So anyway, good problem to have, yeah. but it's still amazing to see. You mentioned interview training. What does interview training mean? You're training the team to interview. I understand that. What is that? look like.
0: So interviewing training is to not only help our teams better assess on a candidate's technical skills, but it actually allows them to ensure that we are always testing for fit with Pendo's core values. To your point, Pendo does have a culture and it's it's a known culture and we want to make sure that not only are we selecting the right people who are aligned to our values, but candidates are also self-selecting out if they're Mm -hmm. not the right fit. So we've introduced this Goldilocks rubric where we will test someone on one of Pendo's core values. And the Goldilocks is too much, just right, or not enough. And we try to see where that candidate falls there. So as an example, one of our values is we respect our lives outside of work. So like too much would be hey, I got a ski trip this week right in the middle of Wednesday. Hey, can you just take my, you know, I'm being a little bit dramatic here. But, you know, just right is, you know, if it's a manager we're interviewing, right? They, you know, check in with their team. How are you doing? Are you taking the vacation time that you need annually? Hey, do you need any support with this? I know you've got daycare pickup, something along those lines. And not enough is, you know, someone who answers the question like, what, time off? No, never. I've gone hard. I don't expect any of my support partners to ever take a day out of the office when it's end of quarter, and I need them. And, you know, like, so, again, I over-dramatized it a little bit. It's more than that, but the too much, just right, not enough kind of works across our entire value system. I
1: actually really like that framing. Okay. I have another tough question for you. Okay. If this framework existed when Jen was interviewing at Pendo, where do you think they would have marked you as too much and where do you think they would have marked you as not enough?
0: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably not enough, at least right now respect life outside of work, but that's my own. That is not my team's. And and I say that because I'm still drinking from the fire hose and I'm very much probably holding myself to a somewhat unrealistic standard of ramping quickly. I need to try to give myself grace Mm -hmm. and be patient with myself. To give you an example, I'm just on the heels of three weeks of traveling in a row, which this is like, Probably worse than pre-COVID days for me. And it's hard. It's hard on my family, my kids. It's hard on my husband. And I'm feeling burnt out. And when I feel burnt out, I'm not at my best. I think I need to be very conscious of making the right decisions about when I need to be on the road and when I don't need to be on the road and just being a little bit more deliberate about how I'm spending my time. And once again, I'm giving myself grace on that because it's early and I want to get to know the team and I kind of want to be part of everything. And, And when you're new it's harder to gauge where you can make trade-offs and where you can't make trade-offs. But I want to make sure that I very much am embodying that and perpetuating that with my entire team. And and I, I'm conscious that as the leader, I very much set and demonstrate the standard. So that, that would be one.
1: All right, that's a good answer. Yes. As you were talking about it, I was kind of reflecting on what mine would be. Most of my career, I was always really deeply insecure And people made me feel this way, that my not enough was experience. I was basically not old enough. And that's a really hard one because I'm not sure how to show myself grace in that position. Like I can't really just turn the experience knob up like you could turn travel down. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I think it's about reframing it though. I do believe we're moving more towards a world where at least high caliber leaders are hiring for potential versus Mm -hmm. experience. And I always encourage my teams to think about people's potential versus their experience. And if leaders that I had worked for and with only looked at my experience, I would never have had the jobs that I did. I would never have been able to move out of HR and move into a commercial role. But somebody saw my potential and was willing to take a gamble on me. And so I think we need to help people reframe that, that, you know, years and years of experience. Yeah, sure. That's great. But if you've got the potential and if you've got a growth mindset, then you can do anything.
1: Yeah. And I think that shows up in your hiring rubrics, right? It doesn't have to be necessarily experience, but rather yeah, the skills that are Technical skills are
0: important, but if you are a perfect mold of our culture and values, yeah. that means that you've got a bias to act, you're in it to win as a team, you're just aligned with the kind of person we want to hire.
1: The other thing that struck me in that same interview that I heard from you, was that your CEO interviews every candidate. That company that I was referring to in our portfolio does the same thing. And again, it reminds me of this puberty thing where you're a hundred plus million dollar company and he's still interviewing every candidate.
0: I mean, Jubin, we will have hired (laughs) 400 people this year.
1: From CRO all the way down the organization, every candidate has to get on his calendar.
0: So we are slowly moving away from this, thankfully. It doesn't scale. It did scale when we were a two, 300-person no company, but it does not scale. And, and Todd very much recognizes it, but he is so passionate about this company and everybody who comes through the door. So it's about helping him find that balance of trusting the folks that he has hired in leadership positions to make the right decision for Pendo. So he and I have been working through calibration. There's a couple of candidates that we've both interviewed to kind of see how he and I stack up from a calibration perspective. If we're wildly off, then gosh, who knows what would happen? He'd be interviewing SDRs forever. (laughs) But I, I think we're pretty well calibrated and we're getting to a point where for certain roles, we're moving him off. And, you know, I actually think for VPs, RVPs, if he wants to interview them, it's a great selling point as well, knowing that your CEO is that engaged and we're that flat of an organization where you have access to the CEO whenever you want.
1: Ariana Huffington is the CEO of this company and I was sitting with her last week. She kept saying that people are bombing these interviews and I'm like, Ariana, think about it this way. If you're fresh out of college interviewing for your first sales job and you're sitting across the table from you, do you think that they're gonna bring their A game no chance. <laughs> no <way. laughs> you know, so I think sometimes there's actually the inverse effect. When you're sitting, it doesn't have to be her. It could be the CEO of this $2.5 billion company. People can't bring their A-game. Yeah. You know? I hear you there. Even in this podcast, I get nervous, people get nervous. All these things happen along the way. Yeah. And there's all these extra peripheral things that affect your authentic self in that moment.
0: I agree. And there's also an element of... To provide a great candidate experience, you also can't put them in front of 60 people and have the the game keep changing. Oh, wait, now I gotta meet our CRO. Oh, wait, now I gotta meet our CEO. So this is why we're trying to get very, very deliberate about with interviewing training, more structured interview processes, understand the number of people that every candidate's gonna meet, the time frame they should expect, who they're gonna be meeting up front. Because if you keep moving the target as well for a candidate throws them off their game. And they're like, what is this place? And yep. so I think there's, there's a lot that could go wrong if you're not really thinking about the candidate experience. And I do agree with you at a certain level. The intimidation factor of meeting with a CEO might be counter to what you're actually trying to achieve.
1: Absolutely. I have more for you and then I can get you out of here. I was snooping around on LinkedIn. You have a role at Pendo. And again, I might be wrong here. I'm often wrong. So tell me, that's the VP of Revenue Marketing Yes. Does that exist? It's a newish role. Yeah. What is that? And does that report to you or to marketing?
0: It reports into marketing. Yes.
1: And is this like person that's got your back at all times, making sure that marketing is doing what's in the best interest of driving revenue for the company?
0: Yeah. At the end of the day, they should own the pipeline, both new and expansion, right? And all the marketing activity, whether pure demand gen, as well as field marketing, that, that sits under that.
1: Okay. I have a question for you. I have to ask. And I asked Brian Frank this, and this is his interview question that he took from Mike Gamson. okay? I'm totally putting on in the hot seat today. <laughs> A lot of hot seats. <laughs> if you had to rank these four qualities in priority, what would you rank? Career, money, company, manager.
0: I would start with manager. Second would be company, career, money.
1: Okay, why?
0: Because the manager is the one who makes your experience and who you learn from and impacts your day-to-day. Like the touch that you have most frequently is your manager. I want to work for someone that I respect immensely, who I learn from every day and who is growing me. Secondly, the company is important because that sets the tone of the culture and the success that you'll actually have and the growth opportunities that you'll have. The third is career. And I think that follows the other two. I can't put it ahead because I think if you work for the right leader in the right company, your career will ultimately open up for you. And that's what happened to me at LinkedIn. And money I put last because I think the money follows. And I don't mean to be cliche that like if you're doing the right thing and working for the right people, but it kind of is true. If I would have set my sights on Just making money, I would have never left my job in HR. I think about this all of the time. It was a hard decision. Like we were living in New York City. It was myself and my husband. You know, you're kind of like hoping every time you swipe your ATM card that there's enough money in there for your Friday night drinks, right? It was like that kind of early, mid-20s lifestyle. And I had a rapidly accelerating career trajectory as an HR professional. I had been promoted a couple of times At GE, they really respect HR. It's like a core foundational part of the business leadership there. And so I could have had a very strong, steady career of growth there, but I didn't love it. And so I had to make a move. I had to. I had to take a step back title-wise. I had to take a huge step back financially, but it was the price I was willing to pay for happiness and purpose at work. And it actually ended up leading me to a far better career path with far better financial outcomes than I could have ever hoped for.
1: So you think before you had money, you would still have put money at the bottom? Yeah. And I ask because, you know, when I was 21 whatever I was when I graduated college, I was a BDR. And by the way, for context setting, money is now on the bottom of my stack rank. And I answered the question because Brian then asked me the question and I answered it and I never even thought about it, but I answered it the same way in a similar way that you did. And as I've reflected on that question, when I was a BDR, not making much money, I was living in the mission. I shared a room with a sliding door between my roommate and I. There was gates on my window. I didn't have a car, so I used to bike in my blazer because I wore a blazer when I was a BDR making cold calls. <laughs> and because my boss told me one day that I look stupid when I come into the <laughs> office, he said, he said, no, he didn't say that. He said, if you dress for the job, Just you for want, the job I knew dress for the that job was going to be want. a dress yeah. for the job. So you want. of course I, I wore a blazer. And so I would bike from the mission. If you're familiar with San yes, Francisco through Portrero Hill, up the hill, it's hills in the name of this freaking part of the town. Yep. Not a great area through over down. We were in Sunnyvale. So I would take the limited, not the express train, which would take an hour, 15 minutes. I'd put my bike on the train and I would start sending emails out at like 6.30 because I had to be the first person in the office to turn the lights on. Yep. If you asked that Jubin, money would have been quite high on his list. Yep. And I say that because like, man, it would have been easier to be able to afford a place in Palo Alto, (laughs) be close (laughs) to the office, you know, (laughs) having a car would have been sweet. Yeah. So anyway, as I've reflected on that, It wasn't always there. It feels like now that I'm in such a privileged position that I get to answer that money is at the bottom.
0: Does that make sense? It totally does. It totally does. And I don't know why I think I thought I was so financially successful.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Back yeah, then. Yeah. I
0: really did. When I was taking the pay cut, like, yeah, it was a big conversation that my had husband and I you had wanted. to have. But I was like, oh my gosh, we've got a one-bedroom apartment in New York City. Yeah. Cha-ching. We are making it. I really, really felt that. And maybe it's because I had very humble upbringings, but you know, I was working in the business world, which was not anything I'd ever seen before in my community growing up. It was teachers and firemen and police officers, and they had good, happy lives. And so, you know, the fact that I like cracked six figures in my twenties was like wow, this is amazing. And so, I don't know, I always just felt so fortunate. And New York City does make you want for a lot of things, as I'm guessing San Francisco does as well, but I always felt kind of okay about how I was doing.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I told you earlier, I've been traveling for like 18 months and I've been doing that because the variety is the spice of life for me right now. I love changing things up as much as I can. However, in order to live that way, the way that you're traveling is the way that I'm traveling right now. There is a certain set of routines and habits that I absolutely do not compromise on. Working out, meditating, sleeping eight hours, eating a salad, skipping breakfast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For you, besides working out, what is one of your favorite habits? And then what is a habit that you want to develop?
0: It's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Does this have to do with traveling or just in life in in general? In life. It's one of my favorite habits. It's very, very simple, but my morning coffee, I love it so much. (laughs) Literally, I can't do anything until I've had it, but it it like brightens up my day. It makes me so happy. Like if anyone ever tried to take that away from me, and I know there's this whole like, oh, we should try to get off caffeine or like no milk. Dairy's bad for you. Or the whole like, what's that diet where you, you know— Eat for... Intermittent uh, fasting. Inter- intermittent yeah. fasting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I tried to do that once, but I couldn't have the coffee, the, my latte in the morning the way I wanted it. And I was like, no, this isn't for me. Nothing is for me if it does not start with a beautiful hot latte, extra hot latte, light foam. Mm.
1: Okay. What's a habit you want to have? Meditation. Okay.
0: Yeah. I try and I make lists the entire time in my head when I'm trying to meditate. And so... I think I just need to, like, try make a few lists. more times. I make <laughs> yeah. lists. I yeah. do. Well,
1: I think running is meditative for you. It is. It is. I, it is. I, I use an app called Waking Up, and it's it's quite good. Okay, I got to get you out of here. I have more questions, but maybe for a part two. Are you hiring? Yes. What are you hiring for? Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? And then how does someone get a hold of you if they listen to this?
0: Yeah, so we are hiring for every role that you can imagine within a revenue organization, SDR, all the way up through RVPs. And one key role that I'm hiring for, if anyone has interest or experience or a network to ping me over, is a channel leader. So somebody who can help Pendo truly build up our channel strategy. So someone who's done it before at a mid to late stage startup uh, who's got that experience under their belt would be a tremendous asset to me. And how can they reach me? Jen.brannigan at pendo.io.
1: Awesome. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you?
0: Yeah, so I was prepared for this one. It's the only one that you were (laughs) supposed to prepare for.
1: It's the only question that you actually knew was coming.
0: Yeah. So I was thinking about it a little bit. And grit to me, and allow me to explain this first, is optimism and perseverance. And by optimism, I don't mean Pollyanna-ish, Everything's going to be all right. By optimism, I believe it's the continuous belief in yourself and the perseverance to try to do the best that you freaking can despite the circumstances. And I think about a lot of things. I also, we didn't talk about this. I also play tennis. I think about a lot of things in life and in business as to like on the tennis court. You're on the tennis court. You know momentum shifts up and down. And sometimes you play well, sometimes you don't. Grit to me is even if you know you're going to lose that set, you should lose 6'2, 7'5, not 7'5, 6'2. It's because you are gonna push yourself to the bitter end, even if you know you might not ultimately come out the victor. And that to me is grit. It's having that optimism that I am going to surpass what I was able to do last time in this situation, even if it's not the ultimate outcome I want. I'm continuously getting better.
1: What a great metaphor. Jen Branigan, thank you for your time. Okay, I've got all kinds. That was Dennis awesome. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. It's a wrap. that's it thanks for listening if you're just discovering the podcast we have a lot more episodes with cro's from organizations like snowflake twilio slack linkedin box etc if you want to keep up or support the show the best way to do so is by following us on spotify subscribing on apple and leaving a review thanks talk soon